I have called up in all my years of sorcery Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week, we'll be covering the weird of a Vusel with a Kwan. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. That's a great name, a Vusel with a Kwan. It really is. Yeah. When we had uh, Jason Thompson on, he did such a good job of saying it, and I was so intimidated by his pronunciation, but I feel like I've kind of internalized it now. Yeah, I know. I, yeah. It, yeah. If, if he had never pronounced it with such nonchalance, I don't know <laughs> what I would be saying right now in pronouncing it. I think I would have gotten a Vusel, but I think I would have been just stumbling all over myself with, with a Kwan. Yeah. But now it's like Smith or something. I do sometimes call him a Vusel what's-his-name, but that's normally <laughs> when I try to spell it, and I can't remember how many U's there are. Pro tip, there are two U's. For, oh, wait, no. Um, there are two Q's. Oh, two Q's, two U's, one N. So there's really no reason for, for us to be sticklers about how to spell with the Kwan. I'm pretty sure the Wuthaquans out there in America today won't uh, hold it against us. The Wuthaquan clan. <laughs> the Wuthaquan clan. <laughs> the Yorkshire Wuthaquans. <laughs> the Yorkshire Wuthaquans. <laughs> God, I hope they're not listening. I'd be so embarrassed. Tim, yeah. think this through while we're in the episode. Can you make some kind of Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang joke out of this? Oh, man. Uh... <laughs> Okay, uh, come back to me at the end of the show. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess, Ruth, the question applies to you, too, but, uh, you know. Yeah, so before we start in earnest, uh, I just want to mention one more time about the contest that we're holding during this cycle of stories, the Hyperborea cycle. We're giving away a copy of The Weird, a compendium of strange and dark stories. It's edited by Jeff and Anne Vandermeer, and it's a pretty amazing cross-section of weird tales throughout history. (laughs) But it's from all times, from all times and places and minds. But it's got starting with the Greeks. <laughs> I wish. No, <laughs> I wish. Uh, but it's got stories from like William Gibson and Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, of course, Clive Barker, China Mieville. In order to win the book, draw us a picture of everybody's favorite small, sleepy-eyed god, uh, Sathagua. Send it to us through our contact email on the site through Google+, through our Facebook, through our Twitter. However you want to get it to us, get it to us, and we'll put you in the drawing to win. Random drawing, so as awesome or as, well, you know, put in some effort. (laughs) But, you know, if you don't have talent and you put in effort, that's, we'll we'll totally take it. And we're going to display them all on our site or some such. Yes, we should absolutely have an art show. I'll find a way. And the contest closes March 20th, so get them to us before then, and you will be in the running to win this awesome book. You know, Tim, speaking of art shows, all I can think is, essentially, what we'll be doing is replicating the top of Ibon's tower. 
Yes. With all of his... Oh, yeah, that's true. All of his lovely posters of Sothagwa. Good point. Speaking of Ivan, Phil... Oh, uh, yeah. So last time we had a discussion, well, I guess maybe technically two times ago, but during the discussion of Adora to Saturn, there was all this jibber-jabber about Yaounda, the elk goddess. And uh, apparently we didn't do our research before talking about Yaounda because she actually has not really a pedigree, but Clark Ashton Smith did give her a kind of crazy connection to the mythos. This is an excerpt from a letter that Clark Ashton Smith wrote to Robert Barlow, dated September 19th, 1934, and you can find the full letter on eldritchdark.com. As to the marriage of Yaounda and the flute player Nyarlathotep, I am inclined to suspect that something of the sort was hinted or adumbrated by Nam. I quote the reference. Yaounda, in the third cycle of her divinity, was covered by that spawn which pipes perennial the dire music of chaos and corruption. If this doesn't refer to the Azathothian flute player, I'll undertake to drink a straight gallon of the next sugar whiskey that is imported from Mars. <laughs> oh, Clark. Because he's Clark Ashton Smith. <laughs> so there you have it. She's actually married to Nyarlathotep. And, okay, this is a little weird to me. I don't think of Nyarlathotep as a flute player. I think of Hastor as a flute player. Well, maybe, maybe that wasn't codified yet into the uh, official canon, who's the flute player and who isn't. Dude, Hester's been around since, like, the 1800s. I've heard of Nyarlathotep being the one of the flute players, or the flute player. I suppose he could be the one around Azathoth. Right. Well, he's Azathoth's servitor, right? Right. Yeah, but I always like to think that there's just mindless little servitors mm-hmm. orbiting Azathoth, playing their little flutes, like Jethro Tull. <laughs> you know, what's kind of cool is that we probably actually all do think about this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this is what we think. I know. This is, a, this is a reoccurring thought of mine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think Yanda should have her place in the mythos reclaimed. I, I feel like totally this is- agree. Because it, 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 it took a not a lot of digging to discover this little nugget, but a, a little bit. And I feel like, you know, one in contemplating the mythos thinks probably quite a bit about Nyarlathotep, but very rarely do you think, oh, remember when he was married to that elk goddess? <laughs> I have to admit that gives her a much weirder twist. Um, it does. That's really all I had to say about Yanda. I don't know if you guys have anything else, have anything else to say. <laughs> I do not. Nope, that's it. Well, I guess I do. I do. I I kind of hate the idea that that marriage exists among these gods. <laughs> but other than that, I don't mind. Well, that that feels like something big that you have to say, Tim. What? Tell us about your hatred. It's such a. Um, it's so like human and prosaic marriage That's true. that I hate. I I. And they've all done it. All of these weird fiction guys have married their gods off, and I'm. It's just. It kind of. I don't want to say Not belittles them. Well, didn't he? Or no, he didn't. No. That was Durleth, so. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Durleth. Totally. Um, screwed with his Yeah, guys. I don't know. I feel like it, it makes them a little easier to understand, and that makes me a little squidgy. <laughs> Let's do the story. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, Phil tell, us about, tell us about where this was published and... Yes, so The Weird of Usa with the Kwan uh, was published in Weird Tales in June 1932 alongside uh, a number of names that are relatively familiar at this point. Seabury Quinn, uh, there was part of a reprint of Frankenstein, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in it, August Derleth, uh, and good old Hubie Cave. 
I'm worried that we're starting to run out of uh, <laughs> like new weird names yeah. from old weird tales. I'm worried that we're going to start to <laughs> to get just Hugh Cave every every uh, story. <laughs> but I'm going to keep I'm going to keep up. I'm going to keep looking for the those lost uh, those lost nuggets. But yeah, uh, it was a weird tale story. I don't I didn't I don't have any. Um, other background information on its composition or uh, or if it was sent other places before being accepted. I don't know. Did you guys encounter anything about that? No, I can't find my letters book. Yeah. It's around. Yeah, no, I didn't do any research. <laughs> Tim Mucci, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Did he even read the story? Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> so this Avusel guy, right? He um he he drives down the road in a ca- in a car, right? And um, like, he, why is everything so weird out there? <laughs> and he sh- he has a la- a laser gun, and it's a good story. The end. <laughs> Give, give, O magnanimous and liberal lord of the poor, cried the beggar. Avusal Wuthakwan, the richest and most avaricious moneylender in all of Camorium, and, by that token, in the whole of Hyperborea, was startled from his train of reverie by the sharp, eerie, cicada-like voice. He eyed the supplicant with acidulous disfavor. His meditations, as he walked homeward that evening had been splendidly replete with the shining of costly metals, with coins and ingots and goldwork and argentry, and the flaming or sparkling of many-tinted gems and rills, rivers, and cascades, all flowing toward the coffers of Vavusul Wuthakwan. Now the vision had flown, and this untimely and obstreperous voice was imploring for alms. Yeah, and it's not just, it's weirdly not just alms. He says, you know, he'll do it for, he'll give him a prophecy, which is kind of cool. I feel like if a guy on the street here in D.C. offered me a prophecy in exchange for a couple of bucks, and I had a couple of bucks on me, it would be tempting. Yeah, that would be, that would be interesting. I mean, terrifying, but tempting. Right. But Avusel with a Kwan wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't require any prophecies. Well, what about four one Pazor. Nope. Still no. He just wants <laughs> to go on and think about money. <laughs> <laughs> what about for zero Pazors? Oh, what now? Abusa Wathakwan. He's getting that's a great deal. Now he's getting it for free. He still doesn't want it. He wants this guy to go away and leave him alone. But the beggar offers the prophecy for free, and you'll see why. The beggar says. Hearken to your weird, the godless and exceeding love which you bear to all material things, and your lust, therefore, shall lead you on a strange quest and bring you to a doom whereof the stars and the sun will alike be ignorant. The hidden opulence of the earth shall allure you and ensnare you, and earth itself shall devour you at the last." What does Avusel think about that? Avusel's response to that I think is amazing. 
Well, he doesn't, yeah. I don't know if he says anything, but he just sort of thinks to himself, whatever, that was a platitudinous piece of searing, <laughs> if I've ever heard it. And by the yeah, way... Yeah, he says, be gone. Yeah, everybody ends up on the earth anyway, so it's not much of a prophecy anyway, asshole. <laughs> at this at this point, my heart's with Avusel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He's like, whatever, dude. I... Once I read this, I totally saw what Avusel was talking about. Like, the hidden opulence of the Earth show lore, and it's near you. Okay, he's after, like, jewels and gold and stuff, and Earth will devour you at the last. And I'm going to be buried someday. I knew I was mortal. Yeah. Nice cold reading, jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, uh, you figured out that I'm mortal and rich? It's called life. Get used to it. So then the story fast forwards a couple of months, uh, and we know it says it's many moons later in the year of the Black Tiger. Do you notice there's a lot of, in the language in the story, uh, just maybe on a whim, there's a lot of, like, tiger imagery in these first couple paragraphs? Yeah, yeah, there are. And I can't, I don't think it has any thematic tie to anything. It just sort of seems to be what was on Clark Ashton Smith's mind when he was writing this. He was a fierce dude. Tigers on the brain. Yeah, tigers on the brain. I also thought it was weird that he broke it into, like, chapter breaks. But only mm-hmm. only two, right? Yeah, only two. Yeah. And it is really short. Maybe to just delineate that there was a passage of time. Yeah. Maybe it was kind of a long one. And I like that um, in this first sentence, it was, it was many moons later in the year which became known to pre-glacial historians as the year of the Black Tiger. So I like that oh, yeah, that's right, we're yeah. being told the story way after the Ice Age. Which, despite the story, no black tiger. Is Camorium, it's the same, It's the city that September Zero starts in, right? Or is it the city that he goes oh, to? Oh, no, it's the city that he ends up in. Oh, it is. Oh, right. Camorium, right, is the doomed city. And we'll find out why it's doomed in the next, next episode. time. Yeah. So this takes place well before September Zero's then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is too bad because I was kind of hoping I was hoping to like read into the background crowd of this September Zero <laughs> just hanging out, but uh, no. I, I won't be able to do I won't be able to do that now. No. So. So what's going on now, these many moons later? He is being basically screwed, right? He's like sitting in his his money laundering house. In my mind, this it really does look like Charles Dickens. Yes. For some reason, Camorium has become like uh, Victorian England <laughs> in my mind. So he's like, you know, huddled over a single candle and like won't let his squire or his, uh, what was, what was, uh, Bob Cratchit? Assistant. His clerk. He had like a, a whatever, a job. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Won't let him put another piece of coal on the fire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and this stranger is in his, they call it a lower chamber of his house, in this yeah. chamber, um, trying to unload these two in, emeralds. Yeah, emeralds. And with the Quanis being with the Quanian, which is probably a word that we should attempt to bring into the English language. Definitely. <laughs> which I guess just means uh, greedy and conniving. So he's offering the guys trying to sell the jewels. And I don't like how does money lending lending work? What is the what is the what would be the above board version of this transaction? Because by the logic of it, the thief is saying Spoiler alert, he's a thief. The thief is saying, I will come back for these jewels. I just need this money now, right? Right. He's saying, I, I, look, I can't sell these right now, but you give me however many jewels and I'll come back and pay you back for them and take them away again and sell them at some point. Seems like a pawn shop yeah. in this case. Yeah. There's security yeah, yeah. on a loan. It's also an understanding that they kind of understand each other. Thief's not coming back. Avuzel's, you know, going to do whatever he wants with them, which is probably Horde, because he seems like that kind of guy, mostly. Right. Like, he knows this is, like, a sure thing. Like, he totally plays this guy. 
like an instrument. And incidentally, I note that just a few paragraphs after the year of the black tiger, he's carrying the jewels in a small bag of tiger skin tied at the mouth with sinew. Yeah. And Avusa really wants them and he's playing it cool. And the guy wants 300 jowls for him. Mm -hmm. A.W. offers him 150 because they're hard to dispose of. And uh, he, he, they might be a thief. He doesn't know. But they eventually settle on 200 jowls, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the stranger seems pretty excited to get rid of this stuff. And it's, it's pretty clear to me that the guy is a thief just because he's so excited to unload this merchandise that really is worth, would have been cheap at 300 jowls. So with the Quan's like, hey, this is awesome. I just made a huge profit on this, uh, on this thief. Then he heads back to his uh, to his strong box and puts it in with all these beautiful other jewels of all kinds of colors. And he's essentially just, he's hoarding them. He's not selling yeah. them out. He, he seems to be very rich, but he also seems to be a total hoarder. Yeah, he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he ever plans on selling these gems. And this was really funny in, in this paragraph where he uh, he kind of takes them all out and sorts them. <laughs> and he's got topazes and crystals and sapphires and carnelians and diamonds and rubies and garnets and opals and he sorts them all by type and by color it's almost like i pictured it like um somebody playing with toys because he sets them up Uh and then he sets the two big emeralds (laughs) apart in the story it says like captains leading a file so i picture him like smashing two rubies together and being like <laughs> but yeah, he's totally. This guy loves money. I love this little sentence at the end of. I think it's maybe the paragraph after the yeah. one you're talking about, uh-huh. uh, where it kind of lays Avusil's philosophy out, which is basically money and gems. These things alone, he thought, were immutable and non-volatile in a world of never ceasing change and fugacity. <laughs> and to go back to the Wu Tang thing, Carnelians rule everything around me. Cream, get the money, dollar dollar bills, y'all. <laughs> Tim, yeah. thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I think that probably Avusil as a character isn't very exciting, just he's because clearly this is a morality, a pretty simple morality tale. Yeah. But I like like this sentence to me kind of grounds it. It's like we at least have a hint that to him, money represents some kind of permanence beyond. You know, I think the subtext is beyond like emotions and relationships and other things that are sort of. Uh, slightly messier money to him at least feels permanent yeah um which is nice like it, i feel like it's it's a good little uh little post in the middle of the story to kind of ground the character as as being something other than just a caricature you know and it kind of it explains his later actions yes yeah mm-hmm. and um before we leave these gems that are just lying on the table i'm sorry guys you started me on the tiger thing and <laughs> yeah we have chatoyant <laughs> Shine that shown like the eyes of tigers, yeah. and that actually means um, chatoyant means that cat's eyes, and they're they're what we call tiger eye uh, jewels. Hmm. So, yet more tigers' hmm. eyes. We've had tiger skin, we've had tiger eyes, and we've had the year of the black tiger. To go back to our other motif of the story, Wu Tang Clan, and with the Quan, perhaps we should coin the term Wugacity instead of fagacity. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, <laughs> Wugacity. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but I know that I want to say it. <laughs> we'll figure it out. 
so he's playing with his toys, his gems, his gem toys, uh, and the two that he just got, they just start to move on their own and roll away. And suddenly it becomes like a weird Looney Tune cartoon. Yeah. What's weird is that, uh, the story notes, he was deeply alarmed but was more concerned by the prospect of losing the emeralds than by the eeriness and mystery of the fact that they are just getting up and walking out the door. (laughs) But yeah, it becomes like the old dollar bill on a fishing pole. (laughs) It's like he's he's just chasing these things and they're just going and going and going. And they start glowing. The the jewels seem to wink derisively with a strange... Phosphoric luster. So he chases them down the streets of Camorium and through somewhat more unsavory quarters, and then, and suddenly they start heading out into the wild, luxuriant jungle beyond, which is no doubt the same jungle that our other two thieves had that wonderful chase yeah. through a few episodes back. I wish that there was a little paragraph in here talking about Avusel feeling betrayed by these jewels. Oh, yeah, that would have been good. Just because it's like to go back to my favorite sentence in the story, like I feel like this would be a uh, a true betrayal of his like what what makes money interesting yeah. to him in the first because he even said earlier that it doesn't even matter that the gems were stolen from somebody else. Mm-hmm. He owns them now. He paid for them. They're his. Like they're his yeah. property. So now that they're running away from him, <laughs> but as he's running down the street, I picture like. If this were to be like um, a Hollywood movie, there'd be like a guy with a flower cart and he's got to jump over the flower <laughs> cart and he's like dodging out of the way of like people emptying buckets in the street. Yeah, it's funny. This is the moment when, when this story jumps from being uh, Charles Dickens to being Disney's Aladdin. In <laughs> yeah. Because he's going through the bad part of town, right? So it's all like Arabian beggars for some <laughs> reason. <laughs> And he looks like Jafar, but like Jafar when he is the scary homeless man, Uh Jafar. You know what I'm talking about. I do. We've all been there. Confession, I haven't seen Aladdin. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Are you you the same Ruth who accused us of not knowing what Ursula looks like in The Little Mermaid? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I mean... If this was 1993, I'd be saying go see Aladdin. But at this point, I feel like maybe that ship has sailed. And <laughs> yeah. So he he runs out of Camorium. Yeah. Also, how the hell did you remember that? Remember that you said that we didn't know what Ursula looks like? It's because I think about Mother of Toads every night before I go to sleep. It's <laughs> like that was years ago. Okay, not years ago. <laughs> that was like two settings ago, Phil. That's funny. I don't remember that either. Water under the toad film I have, I have um, unfortunate oldest child uh, proclivities where I remember <laughs> things that people did so that I can bring them up later and uh, hold it over them. <laughs> it's fair. So do I. At least I think... Once an episode, Phil compares something that we're reading back to a Disney movie. You think you think it's once an episode? It may not be one for one, but it's very near <laughs> one for one. Look, there are a lot of things that have influenced me over the years, yes. and Disney films are one of them. Except The Little Mermaid. I, I mean, the thing is that I had seen The Little Mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get back to the story. So the jewels are leading him now. Out of Camorium. And they're bouncing ahead of him, just out of reach, yeah. so they're not, like, way ahead of him. Which is good, because he's panting, because he's not used to this kind of thing. His flabby limbs and Percy body were faint with fatigue. <laughs> Camorium was far behind him now. 
and there were no more huts on the lonely forest road, nor any other wayfarers. He shivered a little, either with fear or the chill night air, but he did not relax his pursuit. He was closing in on the emeralds, very gradually, but surely, and he felt that he would recapture them soon. So engrossed was he in the weird chase, with his eyes on the ever-rolling gems, that he failed to perceive he was no longer following an open highway. Somehow, somewhere, he had taken a narrow path that wound among monstrous trees whose foliage turned the moonlight to a mesh of quicksilver with heavy, fantastic rattlings of ebony. Crouching in grotesque menace, like giant retiari, they seemed to close in upon him from all sides. But the moneylender was oblivious of their shadowy threats, and heeded not the sinister strangeness and solitude of the jungle path, nor their dank odors that lingered beneath the trees like unseen pools. Nearer and nearer he came to the fleeting gems, till they ran and flickered tantalizingly a little beyond his reach, and seemed to look back at him with two greenish, glowing eyes filled with allurement and mockery. Then, as he was about to fling himself forward in a last and supreme effort to secure them, they vanished abruptly from view, as if they had been swallowed by the forest shadows that lay like sable pythons athwart the moonlit way. So yeah, he's about to jump on them, and they totally disappear. And I just want to point out my vocabulary word, retiari, are those Roman gladiators who fight with the fishermen's tools, like the nets and stuff. Those guys Net were awesome. Fork. I had no idea they had an actual name. I was really excited when I learned it. Yeah, I didn't either. The little winking gems disappear. Where did they go? I don't know. He doesn't know. He was He's baffled and disconcerted by it. Uh, upon further exploration, he sees that the path ends in a cavern mouth. And it, it's funny because in the story it says in his cooler moments, he would have hesitated a long while before entering it. But these are his gems, so he doesn't really think too much about it. He enters the cavern. I picture this as being like one of the caves in Skyrim where you come up to it and you've got like a moment where you can like you're outside of it. But once you get inside, you know, you're kind of you're inside and you're going to have to wait through another loading screen. <laughs> So once you get in, you're like, oh, crap, well, you know what? I'm not going to load that again. I'll just explore and see what happens. So he enters this cave and the emeralds are still there. They're still leading him. There's a steep incline in the darkness and it's low and narrow, but he could still see the, the jewels off in the darkness. They seem to float with float beneath him in the black air. It's so very Disney right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to agree with, with Phil yeah. and everything. It's just And then again, they're almost within reach. And then uh, they slip beyond him, I guess down like a pit or a passage. Mm -hmm. But again, he loses them. And then he realizes that he's standing on this amazing narrow ledge of stone. And there's an entire chamber before him full of these things. It, it compares it to a granary filled with grain. Just everything. If his little line of soldiers now just looks pathetic next to this pit full of jewels. Yeah, a whole cave filled with jewels. This guy must be freaking out. Oh, he is. And in fact, three, two, Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> yep. He dives on in.
In his most audacious dreams, the usurer had never even suspected the existence of such riches. He babbled aloud in a rhapsody of delight as he played with the numberless gems, and he failed to perceive that he was sinking deeper with every movement into the unfathomable pit. The jewels had risen above his knees, were engulfing his pudgy thighs, before his avaricious rapture was touched by any thought of peril. Startled by the realization that he was sinking into his newfound wealth as into some treacherous quicksand, he sought to extricate himself and return to the safety of the ledge. He floundered helplessly. Avuzawathaquan began to feel a frantic terror amid the intolerable irony of his plight. He cried out, and as if in answer, there came a loud, unctuous, evil chuckle from the cavern behind him. Twisting his fat neck with painful efforts so he could peer over his shoulder, he saw a most peculiar entity that was crouching on a sort of shelf above the pit of jewels. The entity was wholly and outrageously unhuman, and neither did it resemble any species of animal or any god or demon of Hyperborea. Its aspect was not such as to lessen the alarm and panic of the moneylender, for it was very large and pale and squat, with a toad-like face and a swollen, squidgy body and numerous cuttlefish limbs or appendages. It lay flat on the shelf, with its chinless head and long, slit-like mouth overhanging the pit, and its cold, lidless eyes peering obliquely at a Wathaquan. The usurer was not reassured when it began to speak in a thick and loathsome voice, like the molten tallow of corpses dripping from a wizard's kettle. Oh, what have we here? By the black altar of Sathagwa, tis a fat moneylender, wallowing in my jewels like a lost pig in a quagmire. I feel like you need to make it a little bit more corpsey. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, No, that was awesome. <laughs> you know, I feel like Smog's really let himself go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this thing is weird. Yeah, it's really weird. This weird toad fish thing with like no chin and ugh. Oh, and no. it's talking. Big gaping slit-like mouth. Like, yeah. It's, just, it's like one of those I, weird jellyfish Fish that just lay on the bottom of the sea and they look like they have giant noses and big blank eyes. What do cuttlefish limbs look like? I don't realize, I just, I just realized I don't actually know if I know specifically. Aren't they like octopus? Cuttlefish are like, yeah, they're, 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 their limbs are basically tentacles. I know a lot of things to be true, and one of them is that Clark Ashton Smith gives good monster. He does give good monster. He gives, he, he gives real good monster. Yeah. I would like to see this illustrated. I wonder, because, like, I, the first time I read the story, I expected this just to be Sothagwa. Yeah, right. Um, and it yeah, kind of feels like a punchline when he says that he's not. Because he, he specifically is described as kind of being similar, like a toad-like face, right? And the kind of, like, fatness of him. But then, you know, he specifically says that he's not. But you never really know what this thing is, right? No. It's just, uh, no. And it just seems to be interested in the jewels, maybe. Yeah, this thing collects jewels in this pit. This thing's got mad wagacity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, Clark Isaac Smith could never be so boring as to just, you know, make it a dragon. No, no, Seriously. it's just some weird, it's just some weird guy that's living down there who's collecting and enchanting these jewels. And he knew the thief stole those emeralds. They were his emeralds because Avusol said that he came in search of his emeralds. 
And the entity's like, your emeralds, those are mine. Some thief stole them, but, you know, the, I knew I could get them back. I knew I could call them back to me if I wanted to. And seriously, that thief was just kind of scrawny, not much meat on his bones, whereas you, you're looking delicious tonight. <laughs> Have I told you? Avusel Wuthaquan had sunk slowly but steadily into the yielding pile, and green, yellow, red, and violent gems were blinking gorgeously about his bosom and sifting with a light tinkle beneath his armpits. Help! Help! he wailed. I shall be engulfed! Grinning sardonically and showing the cloven tip of a fat, white tongue, the singular entity slid from the shelf with boneless ease and spreading its flat body on the pool of gems into which it hardly sank. It slithered forward to a position from which it could reach the frantic usurer with its octopus-like members. It dragged him free with a single motion of incredible celerity, then... Without pause or preamble or further comment, in a leisurely and methodical manner, it began to devour him. Brrr. Gross. It's really gross. I love this monster. Yeah. I love that it doesn't have bones. No, it like, just yeah. like slides around. <laughs> and like the idea of it moving like almost weightlessly across this like surface right. of jewels is really upsetting. Uh, and I love that it talks. Yeah. It's such a mm-hmm. great touch. I love that it talks, but then at the end it doesn't even, like, it doesn't, it no. doesn't have, like, a, it doesn't have a final one-liner. It's just like, <laughs> eh, I'm just going to eat him, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with this nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. Let's take it back. Yeah. Let's take it all the way back to the beginning of this story. Okay. Do you think that this would have happened... If Wuthaquan hadn't been quite so wagacious and had given him the pavuzels that he wanted, like was he cursed? Yeah, I guess that's the question. Like, is this was this going to happen? Like, would that thief still have come to him? Because I think it probably would have. So I guess what I'm yeah. saying uh-huh. is, did was that beggar's prophecy really a prophecy, or was it exactly what Wuthaquan thought it was, which was like a bunch of platitudes and obvious nonsense? I don't know. Maybe if he was maybe if uh, Avusel was accepting of the prophecy had paid the gold and heard it he would have been more receptive to it and could have avoided it but since he didn't yeah. want anything to do with it it became more of a doom than a it became a weird instead of a um a prophecy <laughs> oh yeah speaking of which we didn't even talk about the weird use of weird yeah. in the title of the story but well, I'm sorry Ruth, what were you going to say I was just going to say that maybe if he'd paid the stuff the thief would have told him something like, you know, giving him a prophecy, like, unless you turn from your wicked ways, because right. that's like total Old testament so I feel like, or Hebrew bible or right Hebrew prophety, like, to say, hey, unless you turn from your wicked ways, you're going to be consumed, and then it's just like, It would have been more you. like advice and less like a, like a very vague warning. Yeah. Yeah. So the weird. Yeah, it's just a different usage of the word weird, which is, I think, totally now archaic like nobody uses the weird yeah. the word weird in this way anymore mm-hmm. it means a fate do you think that it was a uh, archaic in some sense even when clark ashton smith used it I um mean, probably didn't he learn didn't he educate himself by reading like the oxford english dictionary <laughs> he educated himself between the pages of books and between the sheets of married women <laughs> <laughs> that's it no that's it this episode's over <laughs> pull yeah. the plug <laughs> Pull the plug. <laughs> this podcast. I is think over. that um, 
more educated people might have been somewhat familiar with. Right. That, you know, similarly educated people. So it wouldn't have been a complete whatever. I feel like the word weird, as we see it, has now not talking about weird fiction or about fate weirds. At, the, at his time, I would say it meant eerie and such. And yeah. people kind of knew what it else it meant. I think someone should write weird fiction, but write fiction only about prophecies and predictions. <laughs> So I don't know what else to say about the story. I mean, I, I sort of feel like it's strange in the sense that it is a very, very straightforward yeah. morality tale, right? Um, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily make it bad. It just makes it like, in some sense, expected. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, there's nothing to really dissect. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. It's like greed is bad. Yeah. There is some really yeah. great writing like when um Oh yeah, I mean it, it's it, yeah, it's a very well constructed yeah. thing, but um when Avusel is meeting the thief in his little lower chamber, he plays a lot with the way the light is hitting everything in the room and it's just you really feel this sense of place. Yeah, I think it it's beautifully written and for a morality tale, it's got a bitchin monster. I mean, it does have a bitchin monster, it's true. That monster is crazy. Monster is totally crazy. Um, Hyperborea, Hyperborea's had some great monsters. I mean, we're only three stories in, but I mean, Door to Saturn, I don't know if you'd call them monsters so much as natives, but it was full of crazy imagery. <laughs> and that thing in Satambra Zero uh-huh. was pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. Uh, something else really cool is coming up in the next story. I don't even know what to do with that. That that made me think of, uh, of Arthur Macon and Laird Barron. Speaking of which, we're going to have a guest for the next story, but should we tease and not tell who it is? Yeah. Let's keep them, keep them on their toes. Keep them guessing. Uh, will we even have a guest next? Will we have a guest next time? <laughs> who knows? There's only one way to find <laughs> out. <laughs> we're Damon Lindelof in <laughs> Do you guys have like a, a list of people that you'd really like to have on the show? I'm just... Well, I mean, like, do you think, like, the guys from the M.R. James podcast or the H.P. Podcraft or S.T. Joshi, we could bring them yeah, on? Yeah, let's have S.T. Joshi. to say about CAS? Uh, I'd never really thought about a list. I mean, I, I had a blast with our first guest, so I'm kind of open to anything. Yeah, right <laughs> I totally agree. I think the less I actually know about the people who are coming on the show, the, the better it is. I know nothing about our possibly actually a guest, but maybe not a guest at all. <laughs> Wow, the most you... obscure statement I've ever made. <laughs> I don't know whether you suck at hosting or you rock spontaneity. <laughs> oh, I'm just happy doing a podcast with you guys. Aww, Me too. Damn. I would sing you a song from Aladdin right now, but Ruth wouldn't get the reference. <laughs> so I guess that's it, right? Do we have anything else to say? Well, next time we're doing Testament of... Athemaeus, right? Yeah. yeah. Don't forget to enter our contest if you want the awesome book. I'll send it to you. I'll even write you a little note. What's the note going to say? I don't know. I'll wait. Yeah, Tim. Guys, we are ending this episode with so many mysteries. What will Tim's note say? Who will our guest be? (laughs) Will we even do another episode? (laughs) Is this the end of the double shadow? Tune in next week.
Wait, so are we done? <laughs> yeah, I can't find any. I'm so out of it right now. What? Tim, are you on drugs right now? What's no, going on? I'm totally undrugged, and that's probably why I feel weird. No booze, no drugs. This is what <laughs> real life feels like. This is pure Tim, raw dog in it. <laughs>